I remember. I remember thinking our youth minister was cool. Not cool, cool. Not hip to what was happening, cool, but cool. He loved the Chicago Cubs, White Castle hamburgers, elevated trains. And one weekend, he tells a bunch of us that he's taking us church kids to my first professional baseball game. Wrigley Field. Hot dogs, Coca-Cola, summertime, glorious. I sit in the cheap seats next to a super pretty lady who is very happy to be there. She screams and claps and jumps about. Are you excited? She asked. Are you excited? Yes, ma'am, I am. Close game. Tied up at the bottom of the seventh. Runners at first and third when the home team hero steps to the plate eyes the pitcher like he's the new stepdaddy and hits a whopper. The ball soars, 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 then over the fence, home run. The crowd loses its mind, cheering, screaming, madness. Then the woman next to me takes off her shirt and waves it around like a flag to celebrate. Turns out that shirt was the only thing she wore to the ballpark that day. And she cheered, shrieking, are you excited now? Can you believe it? Are you excited? And I am excited. And I can't believe it. I can't make a sound. I can't move. I can't think. This glorious nakedity renders me frozen. All of this under the watchful eye of the youth minister, my holy chaperone. And now I know I will pay. This doesn't just happen. It's too good, too perfect. One simply cannot have this series of events occur in this order without knowing full well that retribution is nigh. Our youth minister saddles past the other kids to talk to me. The fire of divine retribution burning his eyes. But he doesn't tell me about Jesus. He doesn't even tell me to wipe that goofy grin off my face. No. He tells me about God. He tells me that God wants me to be right here in this seat on this summer day with that cold drink, a home run, and everything that goes with it. God wants this. But maybe, maybe God wouldn't mind if I kept the rest of it to myself when we got back to church. Day on Snap Judgment, the breakfast of champions. Amazing stories from real people, young people, winning the best way that they can. My name is Glenn Washington. I'm from Michigan, so I love the Tigers, but I'll always, 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 always have a soft spot for the Cubs when you're listening to Snap Judgment. As we begin, I have to note that people back in the day, they didn't exactly use modern language when describing each other's reality. In our first story, it starts on the playground at an elementary school in Texas where Terry Galloway is playing with her friends.
Okay, so one time we were running around on the playground, just running around on the playground, and all of a sudden I could just feel myself lift. I thought, oh my God, look at me, look at me, look at me. I looked around and no one seemed to be looking in my direction. And then I fell and I vomited. I was telling my friends, look, I was flying, I was flying. And they just thought, no, I tripped and I was sick and something was wrong. Terry would hallucinate like this all the time. And it wasn't until her mother took her to the hospital that she found out why. They found out that I was uh, I was kind of blind as a bat and pretty much deaf as a doornail. And the combination of Terry's nearsightedness and hearing loss was the reason why she felt like she was flying at times. The cure was actually worse than a disease at this point. The doctor gave Terry a pair of super thick cat eye glasses and a box hearing aid. This was 1960, and the hearing aids were far from dainty. The two molds that sat in Terry's ears connected to a box that sat in a halter that she would wear underneath her shirts. And it chained me to the ground. You know, it just chained me. So one day, Terry was in the front yard playing with her neighbors when her mom waved her over. In her mom's hand was a brochure. It was for a camp in Kerrville, Texas. And she asked Terry if she wanted to go. I had been talking about camp because, for me, camp was where the rich kids went. These kids, when they would come back from that, they always looked so, so tanned, you know, and so fit and just giddy with whatever success that camp brought and also the sense of community. I thought, wow, yes, I want to go. <laughs> you bet. I was going to be a, a whiz at archery, and I was going to be so hot in my little tennis whites, and, you know, and, uh, and, and I was going to ride a horse. This camp was free to kids with disabilities. Terry's mom told her it was a special camp, and Terry thought, special's good. So at the beginning of the summer, she boarded the bus to Kerrville, Texas. And I was daydreaming the whole trip there. I pictured myself all of a sudden slimming down and all of a sudden getting wonderfully tan. And, you know, and I was going to get transformed into one of the rich kids. We pull up to the lion's camp for crippled children and we get out. And the minute I got off the bus, I knew this was not a camp for rich kids. You know, nobody's jumping off the bus with a tennis racket. There's not a horse in sight. All around me are these kids that I'm looking around and I've never seen anything like this. It's, it's kids that, <laughs> you know, they're kids that are three feet tall and kids that have uh, arms like flippers and, and kids with these milky white eyes and kids that are in chairs and drooling and, and uh, you know, kids on crutches. I was a good kid and I didn't want to be shocked by it. I, I couldn't believe that life had done this to children. I felt myself be turned inside out. It was just fear because this was the unknown. 
The counselors rounded the kids up and divided them by gender and age for the cabin assignments. Terry was assigned to the Chippewa cabin with the other 9 to 11-year-old girls. The screens, and you're in their little camp setting, and it's a little camp cottage thing, but of course, everything's accessible, and everything's very, very clean, you know, everything. But it, it still has this sense of camp. We used to call each other uh, all sorts of things, like, you know, you know I, there, I was deafy, and this girl was one leg. Sometimes we'd call her Peggy. She had gotten her leg kind of cut off in an automobile accident. And to this, to us, it was extraordinarily glamorous. We had a prosthesis, and it was so marvelous. We would watch her strap it on and take it off. It was like a production, a play. And then there was Dolores. She was so wonderful. She was so kind and funny. She had, like, little dark eyes like Bambi. You know, she had very dark hair. But she was she was paralyzed from the neck down. She was uh, on a bed for the most part. And so, because I loved her and we were friends, we would go to uh, breakfast together, and sometimes I, they would let me push her her bed, or I'd push her well bed to, to some event, and then we'd sit and talk. While most of the girls in the Chippewa cabin seemed to become fast friends, Terry only had Dolores. She wasn't exactly part of the in crowd. I wanted to be one of the crowd. I wanted to be in the group. I wanted to be a member of that. But they were cold. You know, I would, I would make overtures, and they weren't accepted. And they had their little clique. Would you say that there were kids at camp who didn't like you? Yeah, there were a lot of people who hated my guts, I got to say. Because, one way or another, Terry managed to offend pretty much everyone at camp. I would do things like, um, I love Jerry Lewis. So I was imitating Jerry Lewis. But Jerry Lewis's funny walk looked exactly like the walk of the girl who had CP, cerebral palsy. And I don't realize that she thinks I'm making fun of her. Or um, the little person. She's like three years older than I am. And I'm calling her a little cutie, you know. And the blind girl didn't like me because, one, I, I would kind of, I would try to push her along. You know, she, was take, she would take too long. And so I wanted to push her along, push her along in the line, push her along, hurry up, hurry up. I thought I was being helpful. Since there was no tennis, no archery, no horseback riding at the Lions camp for crippled children, All Terry really ever did was read Mad Magazine with her only friend, Dolores. And sometimes, they'd go swimming. The pool was divided into two halves, shallow and deep. The shallow, there were the kids that uh, they couldn't swim alone. You know, we call them shallow enders and floaters because they they didn't have the use of their limbs and they always needed uh, two counselors often two counselors, just to move them through the water. And in the, the deep end, where the Chippewas, there were just three of us, okay? That was me, Deffy, and one leg, and then my nemesis, the blind girl. We just did not like each other at all. First of all, she was snobby, and she didn't have much of a sense of humor, and I hated her. And every day, these three Chippewa campers would line up on the short end of the pool for a scrappy, splashy, chaotic race to the other end. 
the blank girl was still getting used to the texture of water is clueless. She could get uh, she could get a little lost. And the girl with one leg, she couldn't keep her balance. And so she was sometimes, she, when she would first start off, she'd be swimming around in circles, which gave me, of course, a god-awful advantage. Well, what I couldn't do was here, but that was okay because the uh, deep end instructor, would, she would chop her hands down and I could see that and she would scream, you know, go. And the blind girl could hear that. We knew if we win the races, you get the reward. At the end of the week, the deep end instructor would decide who out of the three was the best swimmer. The winner would go home with a plastic trophy painted in gold with the words best inscribed on the front. But what they really competed for was the attention of the deep end instructor. All the counselors seemed beautiful to us. You know, they were all young women. And and they were, of course, physically perfect. And uh, she was a swimmer. And honey blonde and aqua eyes and, you know, the perfect body. And, and she was kind. You know, she had all the patience in the world. She thought we were funny. And, uh, and, so, and so, of course, we loved her. If I get that cup and I get her attention, that means I'm, I'm normal enough to be worth saving. I'm worth something. I wanted the prize the perfection, the thing that was perfect. If she loved me, then I was worth loving. Terry's biggest competition was one leg because everyone loved her. And Terry had lost a few races. But still, going into the final race, she more or less felt like this was her trophy to lose. I thought, ah, oh, this is a shoe, and I was going to beat the pants off of them both. And I thought, I'm not going to beat them the way I usually do, which is that I left their asses in the water. But because it was the last day to race, the deep end instructor decided that instead of doing the honors of yelling, ready, set, go, and chopping the water, she would let one leg do it. I'm reading her lips. I'm so nearsighted. I'm just blind as a bat. And I kind of understand that it's ready, set, go. But I get afraid. They've been practicing this too, and they are off like shots, and they are like a half a length more than in front of me, and I think, I'm not gonna win. I'm not gonna win. And, and I'm just furious with myself, because I understand it's because I didn't hear the right thing. And I wanna say, stop the race, because I didn't hear it. I didn't hear it right. You gotta stop it. They were not going to have a bit of sympathy for that. And so I start, and I keep thinking, this isn't fair. I'm going to lose, and I can't even I can't even protest. I'm just so furious, and so I think, I'm giving in. <gasps> I just sink. I let it all go, and I just let myself drop. And then I come bopping back up. I'm performing driving. And I see the deep end instructor is aiming. And so I'm going to go for it. And I drop back under. 
And I just know it all got very serious right at that moment because in a camp for crippled children, if a kid goes under the water, that's not fake. So she dives into the water and she grabs my arm and she's dragging me and I'm spluttering. She tosses me out of the pool (laughs) and I let my body go limp. It's just like flap and she's on me and she's pressing the water and I knew it was coming, and I just gulped in as much water as I could, and she does it, and I'm spitting it up. I'm doing everything I can to make this performance seem real. When I open my eyes, that's when she just burst into tears and grabbed me. And, you know, and... (laughs) Man, that's what I wanted, wasn't it? Everyone thought I had just about drowned. Terry walked around for the rest of the day feeling giddy, but also kind of guilty. And so when she walked into the cafeteria the next night for the awards ceremony, she didn't know what to expect. There's a little stage in the back. There was a pianist. He was blind, a blind guy who came there to perform. And then you have a, a field of chairs interspersed with the kids in their beds, on their rail beds, the kids in their wheelchairs. It's a sea of children with every kind of body. So the award ceremony started. They would, you know, call out who won what, and you would go up there, you would be wheeled up there. So I'm sitting there. And Terry struggled to see and hear what was going on. But she did manage to see the deep end instructor make her way to the stage. And then, all of a sudden, the girl sitting in the wheelchair next to Terry grabbed her by the halter and held the speaker of her hearing aid and yelled, You won best swimmer! I had really mixed feelings because, you know, when I was not the most popular person in that camp, I've been rewarded for a huge lie. And I thought, well, i got to show him. And so I limped across the stage to get my award. And then I limped on my other leg after I had accepted the award. (laughs) I didn't want them hating me. They didn't even know the depth of the fraud. When Terry got back to her seat, her friend Dolores asked her if she had twisted her ankle. And I told her, yeah, both of them. I was, you know, I was in my cot thinking about what had occurred, what had happened. And I was just feeling so, you know, overwhelmed with guilt that I got this under such false pretenses. And also, it it, it was occurring to me what I had done. Terry thought about getting up, crawling out of her cot, and making her way to the deep end instructor's room. I wanted to go and knock on her door and, and, and fling myself at her feet and confess, confess, confess. But I was scared. You know, it, it seemed too much. It seemed like too adult, too another territory altogether to go confess that I did this 
and confess what she meant, and then confess that I love doing it. I tried to go to sleep, but it wasn't going to happen. And so I stayed up half the night. I just curled my little body up, and I was feeling ashamed and and thrilled, thrilled to my bones. Big thanks to Terry Galloway for sharing her story. After a stay at Lions Camp, Terry realized that she loved to perform, and she's still performing on stage, in films, and on the radio. To find out more about Terry's life, check out her book, Mean Little Deaf Queer. The original score was by Leon Morimoto. That story was produced by Adiza Egan. In just a moment, Snap Judgment drops you right in the middle of the crazy. When the Breakfast of Champions episode continues, stay tuned. Welcome back to Snap Judgment, the Breakfast of Champions. Our next story, it starts in 1957, Communist China, where Charles Lee takes us into one of the strangest times of his life. Snap Judgment. Do I remember the day I crossed into mainland China? Yes, absolutely. I was nervous, my heart was beating hard, and I just knew that I was stepping into a unknown world. How did you say goodbye to your father? Did he see you off? No, he didn't see me off. I had a little suitcase of clothing, and he gave me a little bit amount of money, and, um, and that was it. And, and I went to the train station and boarded a train and went to the border. For Li Na, crossing from Hong Kong into mainland China was his last resort. People who were in Hong Kong at the time were mostly refugees from China. They left when the communists took over, so there was not a desirable thing to do. Very, very few people went back. But Li desperately wanted to get an education, and his father told him China was the place to go. Going to China meant that everything was free. And he encouraged it, and I didn't know why. Once a powerful political figure, Lee's father gave him some advice before he left. Keep everyone in the light while you yourself remain in shadow. He said this means finding out everything there is to be known about everyone without ever divulging your own thoughts, your own plans, your own feelings, or any other important information about yourself. That's how he found himself on the border of the very same place his father had fled. There's a Chinese guard there, and in my case, it was certainly strange to me, and it was 
more than strange, it was bizarre, that as soon as I went over to the border, there was a man in plain clothes uh, waiting for me. So he said, uh, ah, uh, you are Li Na, you know. I said, yes. Uh, he said, uh, I am from the government and I'm here to uh, welcome you and, um, you know, I will take care of you from now on. It, it was very strange to me. I mean, it was a little frightening, but, uh, but I, I, I mean, it was no choice. So I went with him. On the train, the man started asking Lee questions, a lot of them. Who's your father? What's his name? And what was his profession? I was a little taken aback that he recognized father's name and wasn't sure what to make of it. My father had been in jail. He was a staunch anti-communist in his political career. I never tried to hide the fact that I was my father's son. I said, I want to take the entrance exam to go to the university. He says, well, uh, you will do that uh, a year from now, but uh, since you have just arrived from a British colony, we want you to go through a school where you learn uh, the new politics. Do you remember what it was like the first time you stepped foot on campus? You mean the school? Yeah. It looked like a factory. <laughs> Made of concrete, and um, it looked like nothing like a school. My reaction to it was, mine, this almost looked like a, a prison or something. But I was trying to pretend that... Um, that I was okay, that I wasn't uh, frightened in any way, but in fact I was, very much so. Lee had come from an elite Hong Kong school, so when he met the other poor students in the dorm, they didn't understand why he was there. Then he met his comrade, Comrade Liu. And it was made very clear that this person controls your life and controls your fate. Uh, in my case, it was a woman responsible for political indoctrination and political teaching. We have public confessions. In the class, everyone has to get up to say what I did wrong, what I thought wrong, what, what mistake I made. And uh, I didn't want to do it. I didn't want to say it. And I didn't know what to say. So I said, well... I missed not only nutritious, but delicious food, fish and meat and vegetables and, and, and so on. And so I'm wrong, so I shouldn't be thinking like that, and I should feel grateful. Can you tell me, like, what kind of things they would chime in with, or what kind of, what kind of things did they say? Well, you were just overprivileged because you lived in a privileged background, and then a servant cooked all this wonderful food for you, and you were just bourgeois. And, uh, and you should be ashamed of yourself. I expected uh, it to be a Spartan life. I, I, I wasn't expecting wealth. I wasn't expecting uh, prosperity. I was expecting life to be hardworking, but toward a common goal for the benefit of the common people. As the year went on, you know, the, the Great Leap Forward movement kicked in. Chairman Mao wanted to turn the People's Republic of China into a modern industrial state. So he and the Communist Party went into the countryside. And uh, 
everyone, regardless of what you do, were instructed to make steel. Peasants were not growing grains and uh, students were not studying and uh, everyone was making steel. So the consequence was starvation. In my school in particular, rice started being rationed. You're barely surviving. Your body is, uh, your, your body is just screaming for protein, screaming for some kind of nutrients, screaming for some minerals, and you are not getting them. Hardly anyone laughed. Hardly anyone smiled. Hardly anyone talked to another person. My father wrote me letters once every two weeks. I would tell him how hungry I was and all of that, but, uh, you know, he would write back to say that, well, in the process of uh, developing yourself, certain amount of suffering is not necessarily bad, and you just have to learn to endure and, and prevail. So when was it when this campaign to get rid of the four pests started? I think it's in the middle of the, my year there. Uh, was that 1958? It was Chairman Mao's uh, 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 idea that the whole country should spend four days abandoning every other obligations and responsibilities and duties but to go out and kill flies, kill birds, and kill rats and mice in the particular in the rice field and wheat fields and mosquitoes I think four days for each for each pest by the way tell me about uh, tell me about the birds so everyone is supposed to be out of their house with something that make noise maybe a pot maybe a, a metal uh, bowl and with a stick okay so you blanket Everywhere, the whole country should be blanketed with, with human beings so that no one is more than 10 feet away from another person. And you hit whatever things you have, whatever instruments you have. So make noise, so scare the birds so that the birds couldn't fly down to rest. The idea was birds ate precious grain. So if China was able to eliminate them, the people could protect their food supply. Oh, it was just horrendous. It was horrendous um, cacophony. First of all, these birds are so scared, frightened, and then they fly, fly, and then they finally weaken from the flight, and then they drop on the ground, and uh, some people would just go up and stomp on them and kill them. And, uh, you know, when I saw those birds like that on the ground with their eyes opening and closing as if they knew that they were they were near the end of their life and it was just so sad i just felt so horrendous i mean i felt like a monster and i just couldn't bring myself to stomp on them then they moved on to the flies flies and mosquitoes are just for hygienic reasons for human health the party cadres even had a motto stop work swat flies so everyone in the country was uh, ordered to stop doing everything for four days and go out and, uh, and swat flies. 
Well, we were doing it for a couple of days. I think what really drove us over the edge was when Comrade Liu uh, uh, decided that there should be a competition. She told the students that the person who collected the most flies would be rewarded. So I protested. So how can we count the number of flies we swapped? And so we were told to keep the dead flies in matchboxes. Comrade Liu said, you will keep every fly you swat, count them, and turn over to me both the dead flies and your account at the end of the mobilization. Some of my friends and I didn't think that those were particularly good ideas. For example, there was open sewage everywhere. Uh, flies were all over the place and uh, maggots. Uh, you can smash all the flies you want. It didn't matter. They are reproducing faster. You can swat them. I walked by a small village where uh, there was actually a restaurant. The sweet aroma of cooked meat drew my attention immediately. And then I saw some party cadres sitting at a table. They didn't look starved. They looked well-fed, and uh, they were eating all these dishes of meat, which I have not tasted or seen for many months. After eating very unnutritious food and... After all that frustration of killing flies and arguing with Chairman Liu, I was just beside myself for, for a brief moment. So I went up to the table and uh, I brought down my fly swat, which is full of remains of squashed flies, onto their dish of ducks. So they were, you know, startled and then they, they <laughs> jump up and ready to kill me. So I said, look, Chairman Mao says, kill flies. So I'm doing what Chairman Mao said and you better not do anything against me. <laughs> and I turned around and uh, ran away as fast as I could. <laughs> so after years of the entrance exams take place, is that right? National University entrance exams. Um, it was two days of grueling exams, and uh, I thought I did really well. A few days later, he found his results waiting for him. It was on my bed. It was on my bunker bed. Uh, and everyone has a little little envelope. Open it up. I was stunned. I got a notice that I wasn't ex- accepted to any university. So, I mean, I was devastated. Lee had come to China and spent the entire year studying and starving just so he could go to college. It was my only guiding star, as it were. It was to go to university and do well. I wanted my father to feel proud of me that I made it to a university in China. It was like as if the last glimmer of hope was erased. That would be it, you know. But then I was called by the political teacher to his to her office. When he came in, she was sitting on the desk. She normally doesn't smile very much, and uh, there was almost a smile on his face. 
she looked somewhat uh, happy, and uh, I said, I got, I got the rejection notice. I don't, I don't understand. I said, I, I knew I, I, I aced everything in math. I knew I, I did really well in physics, I, in chemistry, biology. I said that I'm surprised that I get rejected. That's when she told me that uh, we know about your father. We think he's undesirable. And you are his son. I, I think she was rather gleeful about it. She felt perfectly justified. So she said that it's obvious that your father sent you here to find out if he could come back to China. She said, you're just a pawn being used by your father to uh, figure out whether or not he could come back politically in this country. You should tell your father that your father is not welcomed here. Lee's father wasn't just an anti-communist. He was a collaborator with the Japanese who had overtaken China during World War II. To the Communist Party and to most Chinese, that meant he was a traitor. Well, I thought I was going to pass out or I thought I, I for a while I was not seeing properly and... and uh, uh, I don't know what the hell was going on. I didn't know what to say. Uh, I just thought that's the, it was the end of the world. How did I know that, that my father betrayed me? Because it's just everything came together. Well, he became close to me by giving me lessons on history and politics and he suggested that, you know, I should think about returning back to China. There's no question in my mind that he used me as a tool. And I suffered immensely. That's when I finally was motivated to say, this is it. I'm going back to Hong Kong. When I went back to Hong Kong, it was all a blur at first because I was so depressed. I was so down and out, and I was very emaciated. By then, Lee was six feet tall and weighed 95 pounds. And he was furious. He couldn't bring himself to see his father. So I just wanted to write him off, as it were. I didn't want to live with him anymore. I didn't want to have anything to do with him. And how long was it before you saw him? Yeah, it was a long time. It was certainly more than a year. That's how long it took before he decided to walk to his father's flat in Kowloon Tong and confront him. I was very nervous. I was nervous because I don't know what was going to happen and what am I going to say what, uh, to him and um, what's he going to do to me? It was very obvious he was not happy to see me, and he and he, he glared at me. He looked with, uh, with great anger. So I, I told him, I said, you know, I, I'm back from mainland China. He said, yeah, I heard about that. She said, how come he didn't come to see me <clears throat> first? I said, well, um, I didn't want to come to see you because I felt that I was being used. I told him that I had wanted to go to university in China, and I failed. I didn't make it because of him. That's when he got angry. He said, I'm the father. I do whatever I want, and you are my son, and 
when the father prospers, then the son benefits. When the father is in dire condition, then the son suffers. That's just life. And I said, you shouldn't have done that. The next thing I know, he struck me. In fact, he punched me in the chest repeatedly for many times. Left arm, right arm, left arm, right arm. And I stood there and took it. And finally, he stopped, and I asked him, I said, how come you stopped? And he said, I'm tired. That meant that if he weren't tired, he would continue to hit me. Then I really got furious. I said, look, you hit me again, and I'm just going to break your arm, all right? So I just turned away and left, and that was the end of it. So I want to ask you, because... He taught you to keep yourself in the dark and keep right. others in the light. Right. But did you have any idea that he was playing a political game with you the whole time? Well, I never thought that these rules apply to uh, father and son. so much to Charles Lee. Charles is a professor emeritus at the University of California, Santa Barbara. And folks, there is so much more to this story. Check out the book, The Bitter Sea, Coming of Age in China Before Mao. Both links on our website, snapjudgment.org. The original score was by Leon Morimoto. If you missed even a moment, get the Snap Judgment podcast. That piece was produced by Liz Mack. Dear Snapper, what if there was someone out there who looked just like you? Someone who's determined to make your life hell. When the Breakfast of Champions episode continues, stay tuned. WNYC Studios and Snap Judgment. Welcome back to the Breakfast of Champions episode. My name is Ben Washington, and I'm just going to be honest. I have no idea what this next story has to do with breakfast or with champions. I don't. I don't. Instead, let me just give you an extra vocabulary word. Doppelganger. If you don't know, a doppelganger is like a dark double or a shadow twin. But what if you're a doppelganger? kind of a dork. What then, listeners? What then? Snap judgment. The first 16 years of my life were, were, were pretty normal. But when I turned 16, uh, I went to get my driver's license and I had to get an eye exam test and I got glasses. And that's when everything changed. That's when everybody started telling me that I look like Rick Moranis. It's like, honey, I shrunk the kids and Ghostbusters, and I am the gatekeeper, and who's the key master? Non-stop, non-stop, non-stop. And it, it, it really, it dug in. And um, when I was a freshman year in college, I'm not bragging, but I, I was in a girl's room, and she said, did anyone ever tell you you look like Rick Moranis? 
And within two minutes, I was out. Like, no, I, I did not want to hear that. And, like, my friends are like, dude, she liked you. What happened? I'm like, no, no. They're like, what happened? I go, she, she said I look like Rick Moranis. They're like, who cares? I go, I care. I care. They go, you're an idiot. I go, maybe. Four years ago, I hit my, my, my lowest point living in New York. I didn't have a girlfriend at the time. I hadn't had a girlfriend in a while. So, like, what I would do, like, a big night for me was I'd get out of work, and I'd go to one of the ritzier hotels and sit in the lobby with a graphic novel and read it. And that was my big night out. So one night I was at one of these like ritzy hotels and like there was like a party going on and I was like curious and I walked over and it was like this huge like pharmaceutical convention. So like I, w I walked in and everybody seemed to be having, having a good time. They're from all over the country and they had their name tags and I, I walked over to the bar and I, I said, hi, uh, can I, I get, a, get a Miller Lite please? And they're like, sure. And so the bartender put down a Miller Lite and I pulled out my wallet and he goes, you're with them, right? You're all set. I go, oh, okay, yeah, I'm with them. Yeah, I'm all set, okay. <laughs> Excuse me, can I get a Heineken Lite? <laughs> Seven Heineken Lights later and I'm a lightweight. I, I was feeling good, I was lubed up, I was drunk, I was feeling good, I was in the, in the groove. And I locked eyes with this girl. She was like probably in like her mid-twenties. She was a healthy-sized girl. She, she looked like Monica Lewinsky. That was good. I like, I like Monica Lewinsky. So she walked over, and we, we started talking. And, and like she was from like outside of Chicago, and, we, and it was just going well. And like right off the bat, and it was nice. And I was a little, oh, this is awesome. And we're going back and forth. And then she says, anyone ever tell you you look like Rick Moranis? And I paused and I waited and then I said, um, well, I should because he's my dad. <laughs> and she's like, really? I go, well, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. And my, she's like, I've never met anybody famous before. I go, well, I mean, I'm his son. She's like, no, famous. I go, okay, yeah, I'm famous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it continued to go well and I walked her back or two blocks to her hotel and we were there and, and like, it was my time to make the move. And I said, I go, you know, I, I had a really quick great time tonight. You know? And she's like, well, the night's not over. Do you, do you want to come back to my hotel room? And I said, yeah, yes, please, yes. I'd, 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 uh, yeah, sure, sure. So we go back, and like, I'm not a kiss and tell, I don't like, I'm not a kiss and tell guy. I don't like doing that. But, but we had a good time. Twice. So she fell asleep in my arms, and I, I just remember, like, like two, two hours later, like, I woke up and I had a major panic attack. And I'm like, this isn't good. This isn't Adam Way. This is not what you do. You don't lie to get action, and you do this stuff. So we woke up in the morning, and we walk her down the street, and I'm, like, shaking. I'm, like, nervous, and I'm flagging her cab to the airport, and I said, hey, wait a minute. I got to tell you something. Like, I'm not really Rick Moranis' son. And she looked at me, and she squeezed my arm, and she's like, I kind of figured that out a while ago. I was like, oh, okay, okay. But I appreciate you saying that, and I appreciate you role-playing in this fantasy that I've had. <laughs> she, like, kissed me on the cheek, and then she, 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 she drove off. There's been many times, like, in my life where Rick Moranis has denied me happiness. But four years ago, Rick Moranis gave me good times. <laughs> Twice.
Adam Wade. He's a storyteller and comedian from New York City. He's doing big things. Check him out. AdamWade.com Now, there's so much in store for you. We keep it wrapped up in something that we call the Snap Judgment Podcast. Subscribe today. Take these stories with you. Do it now before the corporations take that away too. Snap was produced by the team that never misses a meal. Please, get an English muffin for the Uber producer, Mr. Mark Ristich. Pat Mercedes Miller likes toast on his jelly. Anna, ham and egg Sussman, Liz, dark coffee, Mac, if you know what I mean. Pancakes for Jesus Egan. Nancy, the oatmeal Lopez. Eliza, more chorizo, please, Smith. Renzo Grit Scorio. Shane on Mimosa Sheely keeps the party going. The Waffler. Leon Morimoto. Tail Benedict Ducat. Jasmine Aguilera takes tea, two sugars, no cream. And even though, even though this is not the news, no way this is news. In fact, you go to the nearest bearded man on the street, whisper to him that the world has run out of avocado toast. And even as the hot tears stream down his face, you would still not be as far away from the news as this is. This is WNYC. 